Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. No, it's good. Guys, thank you guys so much. Week of prayer was awesome. I uh, was so encouraged by everything that we got to do and all the things that we got to see God uh, do just in our congregation and our, our people that are hungry for Jesus. Can I tell you that there is something uh, about a pastor's heart that is just blessed when people are gathered together for prayer? Uh, you know, because I, I know that it isn't something that I'm doing. You guys didn't come to hear me preach. You guys didn't come because I was singing a pretty song or, you know, just for, for any kind of entertainment value. I think something powerful happens when God's people uh, come together in prayer. And uh, we were witnesses to that this last week uh, where we saw answered prayer over and over and over again. And again, I just want to express my gratitude to be a part of a church that prays, a church that seeks God's face, a church that is encouraged by the Holy Spirit and directed by Him. And so with all that being said, uh, it has been a while since we've had a normal service. And by normal, I mean we had the holidays, right? We had Christmas and uh, New Year's and everything. And then, you know, last week I, uh, I was here prepared to preach, excited to kind of get back to our regular w- rhythm because we had missed a Sunday because of Christmas. And, you know, we did Christmas Eve service. It wasn't like church was canceled, but was like really excited just to be back doing the thing that I love, excited to be here with you guys. And uh, as I was preparing uh, that morning, going over my sermon notes, I got violently sick, Uh, like seriously, to the place where I couldn't keep anything down and uh, just kind of came on all of a sudden. And I came up and talked to Adam and said, hey, man, I hate to do this to you, but there's no way I can preach today. And I, I probably shouldn't. I, I don't want anybody to get whatever this crud is that I got and had to go home. And so with that being said, thank you guys for being flexible. Thank you guys for being sensitive to the Spirit. Um, but also thank you, Adam, for all that you've done and all that you do. And especially thank you for being a man of the Word and of the Spirit that you were prepared to uh, deliver uh, a very timely and an encouraging message last week. So um, very, very thankful for your friendship. You guys don't know this. Adam wasn't even supposed to be here Sunday. If you weren't here, he came back a day early. Uh, I don't know what would have happened. Um, God would have still moved. It would have been okay. So, Father, uh, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you that you're in control and you know what you're doing. Lord, we thank you that this church isn't just navigating itself. We're not just going uh, through the motions of how to do church, but Lord, we are actively listening to you, and we want every little thing that we say, every little thing that we do to be pleasing to you in complete accordance with your will. And so, Lord, I ask as your word goes forth this morning, as our hearts uh, receive what you're doing, that you would be glorified, that we would be transformed. And uh, that the word of the Lord would go forth in a mighty manner for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, 
Guys, last week, my message that I had prepared was geared around our week of prayer. And it was going to sort of serve as a primer for us to jump into a week of prayer. I was really hoping to provoke you guys to the place of prayer and jump into a week of prayer and fasting and really go kind of just gung-ho into it all. And I'm thankful in a sense uh, because I don't really know if we needed that message. I am encouraged that this congregation is already a congregation that prays, that is an intentional about spending time with the Lord. And uh, last week was a testimony to that fact, and it is a blessing to me as a pastor. But the message was going to serve somewhat as a primer. Um, and instead of being able to share those last week, I was busy throwing up. Uh, so I'm going to attempt to give you the condensed version because it'll connect with what I'm talking about this week and really hopefully lay a groundwork and a framework where we're going to go in the next couple weeks, if that makes any sense. And so last week's message was going to be about unity in prayer. If there was a title for it, I actually did have a title for it. It was Unity in Prayer. And today's message is going to be uh, kind of uh, working off of that, talking about unity in mission. Um, but before the disciples were ever unified in their mission, they were unified first in the place of prayer. And we kind of look at that in the book of Acts. And so last week's message was all about unity in the place of prayer. And I, I, I make this claim, and I have it in bold, underlined, italicized things here in my note, uh, in my notes, uh, because I, I believe we can look back at historical moves of God and say that every historic move of God, uh, whether you want to look at the Welsh Revival, if you want to look at the First or Second Great Awakenings, you want to look at the Moravian Missions Movement, you look at these things that we traditionally deem as moves of God, they have been preceded and sustained by the prayers of his people. And I believe prayer plays a pivotal role in the life of the church, in the life of the believer, but also in the mission of God taking its full effect in going forward with power. And so when we look at the book of Acts and the establishment of God's church, uh, we look at the literal launching of God's people into mission. That's what the book of Acts is really all about, we see this certain sense of camaraderie around God's people, around followers of Jesus. And the language that's used to describe that camaraderie over and over and over again, at least 10 specific times in the book of Acts, is that they are in one accord. Uh, just for reference, this is one of the verses that I shared uh, kind of almost every night in our week of prayer. But we were talking uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, uh, it says this about the disciples, that they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And the long context of that is that, you know, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They go into an upper room and they tarry and they wait, but they are together with one accord in prayer and supplication. You see the the... The believers, they patiently heeded the instruction of the Lord to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, the instruction from God, the instruction from Jesus was to wait and tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Right? That's what the disciples do, but they don't just kind of sit around and play tic-tac-toe. Right? 
And I think a lot of the times when we think about waiting on God, we have this uh, idea that it's just, you know, us doing nothing. Um, that is not a good definition of what it looks like to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord uh, is not an inactive uh, activity, if that makes sense. Inactive, you guys get what I'm saying. It is something that we don't just do passively. It's something that is intentional, and it's what the disciples were doing in the book of Acts. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's in this environment that we see the Holy Spirit baptize his church and launch them into mission. You see, Jesus was emphatic that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was essential for the believers to be successful in completing the mission of God. And so Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see this promise of Jesus that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and that we would be witnesses uh, to Jesus in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. We see this promise of the Holy Spirit enduing people with power to be witnesses to Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, and I believe that, that same, uh, that same uh, what we read here, that same substance of what Jesus gave to those disciples in the book of Acts, you know, 2,000 years ago is true for you and I. There is a desperate need to be full of the Holy Spirit if we're going to accomplish the mission that God has for us. But in the, in the context of all of this, you know, I was talking about unity in the place of prayer. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, begins with the fact that they were all together uh, in one accord. You know, they were together in one place in one accord. But Luke wasn't talking about like a mid-sized Honda sedan, right? We understand that. He's not talking about like that. Uh, oh, I, I was about to go off on a tangent that was going to be completely unnecessary, and this is me, as your pastor, after years and years of maturity, recognizing when I shouldn't go down a particular road. And I'm making a big deal about it because I want you to give me a gold star later. <laughs> right? But to be in one accord is to be united in heart, mind, and spirit. That's the language that's being used here. You see, when a people or a group uh, acts single-mindedly, unanimously, in harmony, in unity, and without dissent, they are operating in one accord. This is Jesus' desire for his people. This is Jesus' desire for his church, that we would have one mind, that we would have one spirit, that we'd be connected uh, in a supernatural unity. He actually prays for it in John chapter 17. In John 17, 21, when he's offering up the great high priestly prayer, he prays that, that we all may be one. This is in verse 21. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Paul would go on in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to talk about this a little bit later today. He'll describe how Christ didn't just pray for unity amongst his uh, followers, but he actually dies. He goes to the cross, and it's through the cross that unity is a supernatural gift given to the church where he breaks down the walls of separation. He breaks down dissensions. He breaks down that enmity uh, amongst people to join us together as one body. You see, unity is so much more than just us getting along with one another. 
I, I need you to understand this. I, I think a lot of the times we boil, uh, we boil things down to simplistic elementary levels and we forget uh, about the grand scheme of things. But the reality is when we're talking about unity, when we're talking about the necessity for unity amongst the body of Christ and amongst believers, uh, it's not that we would just get along with someone. I think a lot of the times that's kind of what we boil it down to. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, so-and-so's not mad at so-and-so, so we must be unified, right? Charlie's not throwing fists at Darwin in the middle of service, so, you know, we're unified, right? And, and Pastor Nate doesn't have beef with somebody, so, so that we're unified. But we understand that just because there's not dissension doesn't mean there's unity, right? Just because there's not problems doesn't mean we're unified. And it's important for us to not just kind of take this scope and, and take this, this idea that, well, as long as there just isn't problems, as long as there isn't dissension, then we're okay. I believe we need to move past that and move into the place where we're unified in singular focus to accomplish the mission of God. And so uh, I wrote this down. It's important to the mission of the church, which therefore is the mission of God, which we're going to talk about that. We're going to bring some definition to those terms over the next couple of weeks. But I, I think you guys understand where I'm coming from. It's necessary if we're going to accomplish what Jesus wants us to accomplish, that we are doing so in one accord, or it'll never happen. So there's this idiom in culture that you guys are probably familiar with about being on the same page, right? You guys have used that language probably before. It's like, oh, we're on the same page, you know, meaning uh, two or more people, they're thinking in the same manner, right? They, they have the same general outlook or position about a particular thing or something. Has anybody ever tried to do something with someone that wasn't on the same page as them? Like the, the best example I could come up with for myself personally was a number of years ago, long before I had met Kelly or she was in the equation or in the picture, uh, I was talking to a young girl, a really nice young lady, and you know we were casually just uh, having conversation, and she lived in a different city, and I was printing t-shirts at the time, and I had to rush over to this other city to deliver some shirts to this metal band that had their first show with a big tour coming up, and uh, I kind of thought it would be a good idea, hey, uh, maybe we should get together and hang out while I'm in town. And so uh, I, I, it was all just via text message back then and whatnot. I, I thought, well, she's kind of cool. Maybe something could be there, but I, I didn't know. It was, it was very, very casual, if I'm being honest. And uh, so I get to town, and I, I go by her place to pick her up. And, I mean, she is dressed like we were going to, uh, like, a gala or, like, a prom or something like that and recognized very quickly uh, that we were not on the same page about what we were going to be doing that night. And so, because I had mentioned, like, yeah, we could go to this concert and then maybe go get some food. But um, by concert, it was at a place called Phil's Radiator. Uh, <laughs> it's, literally a, it's literally a radiator shop that uh, was a bar, like a really seedy bar at night where, like, local metal bands would play. And I remember just, oh, forgive me. I was, I was very naive. <laughs> So I decided, well, we'll go along with the plan as general, right? You know, as planned. And so uh, this poor girl uh, who was my senior pastor's daughter, uh, it, it, just all, all kinds of fun stuff. Brooke, if you're listening to this, uh, forgive me. 
uh, I was uh, very silly. She's happily married now. It all worked out. God knew what he was doing. But we show up to this, uh, you know, we show up to this uh, bar with a box of t-shirts to drop off at this band and this big old biker dude gets thrown over the table and there's a fight that breaks out and there's these metal bands playing in the background. It's just terrible, you know. And I realized maybe we should just go get some food instead. And uh, my idea was to go to Buffalo Wild Wings with a bunch of our friends. And that was not what she had anticipated for the night or anything like that. So obviously we had very different expectations of how that day was going to go. And uh, obviously we came to a, a resolution where uh, we never talked again after that. I don't know if I have actually said any, anything ever to her like uh, since that night. Uh, we, we stopped talking. Anyway, so nothing ever came of that. But uh, my, my, my point is that we weren't on the same page. We weren't unified in scope. We weren't unified in exactly what was going to happen. And so nothing productive ever came out of that. And praise God, because uh, she's married, I'm married, it's great. Uh, it was just an example here for a story uh, to get you guys engaged. But I, I think maybe this might be a better way to look at it. There are a lot of really gifted builders here in Pagosa Springs, right? Uh, we've got some of them here in our church. Uh, there's, uh, I, I take photos for a living. I take photos of really these crazy homes that are being built all over the place and uh, see some pretty impressive things. But if I were to take all of the really impressive builders, mind you, there are a lot of like mediocre and just probably bad builders here in Pagosa too, but there, there's a handful of really good ones and really talented ones. But if I took all of these guys together, they're all pr- pretty opinionated, I, I feel like. And I threw them into a room and let's say I had an in- infinite amount of money and I just said, hey, build me a house and walked away without any kind of direction, without any kind of blueprints, without any kind of like, this is what I like or this is what I don't. And I kind of just stepped away from that. Uh, I would imagine uh, it'd make for a very, very interesting reality TV show, right? <laughs> just take five builders and tell them to build a house and try to get them to work together to build something of any kind of semblance. It would be absolute chaos, right? Nothing would get accomplished, nothing would get done, and the end result would probably be pretty poor, whereas if you know they were working individually, their houses wind up in magazines and win awards and stuff like that. What I'm getting at here is the importance of synergy and unity in order to accomplish something. And the importance for us as a church to be on the same page of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Does that make sense? Because we can all have good motivation, we can all have good intention, and you may all be gifted in your own right, but if we're not on the same page of why we're doing what we're doing and what exactly it is that we're doing, we're never going to actually accomplish anything. We might be okay, we might just get by, we might survive, but we're never going to fulfill God's intended purpose for Open Door Church if we're not connected and unified and on the same page, if we're not walking together in one accord. And that's why my my messaging was geared. It's important for us to be connected and unified in the place of prayer because I believe it's in the place of prayer that God gives specifics about what we're going to do if we're unified in that place and we grasp hold of his heart in that place, we're able to fulfill his purpose and his intention in practical measure and means. Does that make sense? And so that's just a, just a thought there. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to give that to you. Uh, but our main 
our main source of scripture for this morning is going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a, a few verses here. Now, mind you, this is just a primer. This is to set us up for uh, a little more detailed series of teaching on the mission of the church and what we believe God has called us to as Open Door Church and has more practicals to it. But I need you to catch the spirit behind it before we dig into those practical, how are we going to do this stuff. So beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so I realized that was a, a good chunk of scripture there. I want to just kind of break it down maybe verse by verse here as we talk about the importance of unity. And so in verse 1, uh, the very second word, I guess the first word is I, therefore, um, is this word therefore. And it's important to understand what that word is there for, right? <laughs> I, I heard a preacher use that kind of same language, and I was like, I'm going to steal that because I think that's super helpful. But when I look at the word and I read therefore when I'm reading the Bible, it, it immediately makes me wonder, well, therefore is in response to something that he previously said. And so if you jump back through the first few chapters of the book of Ephesians, you'll notice, uh, you'll notice a pattern. Scholars actually like to break up the book of Ephesians into two segments. Chapters 1 through 3 really focusing and dealing with the grace of God and what God did for us and how he accomplished that. Uh, and he goes into great detail and beautiful imagery in looking at exactly what it is that Christ did for us. And so the response there is where we pick up in four. Um, and actually, if we, the, the verses that we're looking at today, like f uh, verses one through 16, are kind of unique because uh, jumping at the end of chapter four throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians, we get real practical insight, specifics of exactly what it looks like um, to follow Jesus. And this segment here that we're going to be focusing in on today. Um, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, is kind of the, the turning point of the book. And we really lean into it and we see exactly, uh, we, we see the transition that Paul is making throughout Ephesians. And, and it really boils down to this, is if God did such an extraordinary, amazing thing for you, and you ought to live different, and this is how you have to live, this is kind of the, the way that he phrases that transition into giving us real practical reasons for living differently in response to what God has done. And so uh, that's what that walk worthy of your calling is really referencing. You were bought with too high of a price, being the very blood of Jesus, the Son of God, to continue living like you used to. That is something that is uh, very, like Christianity 101, is that God paid too high of a price for you to live the way that you want to live. It's, uh, it's kind of like, a, I, I've used the, if we were all used cars, 
Maybe we're even new cars. Now, let's be honest, we're used cars. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're a little bit beat up. We're probably like a Pinto or something like that if, if, we're, if we want to have a, like a good high view of ourselves. And uh, Jesus comes in and he's like, man, I'm going to buy that car, right? And he pays full price, above asking price, because that car is going to be his. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, we, we feel like, well, yeah, we're, we're the Lord's, but, you know, you don't get an engine with that. Or let's take off a tire or a rear axle or something, something that's really important to the car. And you can have all of the car except for these few little things. But added up, these few little things actually make the car not work at all. <laughs> that's what it's like when we try to give God just part of our lives, right? That's what it's like when we try to give God just, well, you can save me, but just this part of me. He paid a high price for you. So he could have all of you. And we understand he's a jealous God that wants the best for you. But it doesn't happen when we only give him pieces or scraps of our life. So how do we walk worthy of the calling? Right? This, this language here is uh, Paul, this prisoner of the Lord. He's literally in prison, probably dictating this to a scribe, writing this, saying... Uh, I beseech you, I beg of you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Well, I think he kind of uh, gives out the rest of the book to really fleshing out what that looks like. But here in just the preceding uh, verses, we get some real good insight. Um, And uh, it begins with how we interact with one another. I was really hoping that I had different news for you. If you're like, man, this is just all about me and Jesus, um, and we're good. But the reality of it is, if we're going to follow Jesus, other people are going to be a part of that equation. That's disappointing, isn't it? That's frustrating for some of us. I wish we could just be hermits and you know, get trapped off in the mountains somewhere and never have to see another human being because human beings are messy but there is something beautiful that happens within the context of community. When we love one another, it demonstrates to the world that things can be different. Right? John 13, 35, this is the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples. He says, by this, all will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. He says, that's going to be what differentiates you from the rest of the world is how you love each other. The camaraderie, the unity that exists amongst my church is going to be what defines it for everybody else. But man, those of you that have been in church for a while, maybe been around Christendom for any number of years, that's not the case, is it? (laughs) You got the Baptists that are mad at the Pentecostals who are frustrated with the Presbyterians that don't know what to think about the Catholics, and then yeah, yeah. it's kind of a sad state of affairs most of the time. And I'm not here trying to preach that you know we need to abolish uh, like denominational lines and we all just need like one world church or something. That's not what I'm getting at. That's not the unity that we're talking about here. But the reality of it is, is the church is not in one accord. The church is not all on the same page because you've got people that are feeling like, man, our primary thing needs to be social justice. 
Our primary thing needs to be missions, or our primary thing needs to, uh, you know, be evangelism, or our primary thing needs to be worship, or our primary thing needs to be the Word. And we get so discombobulated. We don't know where to look, and we don't know how to function sometimes. And I believe it's important for us to be unified in love with a singular focus, and that focus being Jesus. But if we continue reading here, and so the instruction here begins in Ephesians chapter 4 with how we relate to one another. And it's imperative that we get this right because you cannot love God and hate your brother. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And... Uh, you know, I stole this from a commentary because lowliness and gentleness were things that I, I really wanted to get right. But a worthy walk before God will be marked with lowliness and gentleness and not a pushy desire to defend our own rights and advance our own agenda. And I thought that that was just such fitting language here because if we're going to walk worthy before God, we're going to be lowly. We're going to be gentle. Gentleness is not something that comes naturally to me. I'm not like a fighter. Like, I've never been in a fist fight that I've won. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're not going down that road. Um, but I am not a very gentle person. My wife, she's extraordinarily gentle. Very, very nurturing. Um, me, that, that comes as a struggle. And so when I'm thinking of lowliness and gentleness, I, I kind of thought of them as combined, but uh, as I was really looking into what lowliness is, it's a very interesting virtue. And I, I think uh, reading it, it can kind of almost be mistaken as being a pushover. Um, and it's not exactly something that we're going to put like at the top of our resume of like characteristics of reasons to hire me. I'm very lowly. I, I, I walk with in lowliness a lot, right? <laughs> Um, it's not something that we really hold in high esteem, but it's a Christian virtue that is, and we're told that it's necessary, and it's something that many of us need to practice. It's this idea, and this is the way that I framed it as I was studying it, it's this idea of contentment even when you're not in control. To be lowly means that you might have the power to do something, but you're okay with taking your hands off the steering wheel. And for me, that is something that is hard for me to figure out. That is one that is hard for me to do because I feel like I have to be the guy that calls all the shots. I've got to be the guy that micromanages everything because it needs to be done. And it's something that the Lord is obviously needing to work on me more. But when it talks about with the way that we interact with other people, are you okay with not being in control? Long-suffering, it's not a word that we use very often anymore, right? Uh, it's basically reserved to the, the King James, I feel like. Uh, we're in the new King James. It's still in there. Um, it's not really a word that we use a lot anymore, but one of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, man, I can read this, and the way that I read it in my head is not the way that it comes out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> but he defines long-suffering as the spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. 
It's this characteristic of a forgiving and generous heart. It's this idea of being right and knowing that you're right and being, uh, and being completely within the realm of justification to an act, but not doing so. Uh, I'm not trying to, this is a good example. Uh, we had an issue with a contractor that we hired to help with the flooring downstairs, and it turned out to be just a, a really bad situation through and through and through and through. And I keep getting, I keep having this conversation with a friend of mine. He's like, why aren't you blasting them on the internet? Like, why aren't you just writing negative reviews and threatening to take them to court and doing all these things? And I, I really believe this is, one, uh, it's not worth my time anymore. But I, I feel like I'm justified. I'm within my rights to really just lay into them and make it happen and make them pay and, and tear them down online and whatnot. And I, I think most people would probably be like, yeah, you should probably write those reviews because it was a bad deal if you know the details of the story. But I think long-suffering is the opposite of that, where even when you have the power to take revenge, um, you don't. And that's something that is demonstrated in the heart of the Lord, right? He, he has every right to disown us. We've let him down so many times. We deserve so much worse, but rather than giving us what we do deserve, he extends grace and mercy. And that's something that a long-suffering, generous, forgiving heart does. We continue to read there in verse 2 with bearing with one another in love. And as I read about this, I'm thinking, it's like Paul saying, you're going to have disagreements. People are going to rub you the wrong way. Conflict is inevitable because we're human beings. There are going to be areas of contention. There are going to be frustrations because people are people. But it, when he's talking about bear with one another, it almost sounds like he's saying just put up with one another because your love for them triumphs over whatever inconvenience they might be to you. There are people that I'm bearing with. <laughs> there are people that I'm willing to put up with because they might frustrate me. They might have these things that I disagree with them on, but my love for them as a brother or sister in Christ triumphs over the fact that they might be a mild inconvenience to me or a mild annoyance. Ephesians 4, 13. Oh, man. 4, 3. I just hit a button and it went to the very end of my sermon. Now I don't know how to get back. But we were in 4.3. So as we read this, we, we pick up in, a, in verse 3. It says, To endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is something that I, I, this verse really has a lot of theological ramifications that is important for us to understand. Unity of the Spirit is a gift. It's not something that's manufactured. It is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. The charge here from Paul is not that we would create unity in the church. It is that we would keep it. It's something we need to endeavor to keep, meaning that it takes work to maintain, right? If you keep a garden, you maintain a garden. Uh, and I love the word that it uses here, endeavor. That means make effort, that you're going to have to work at keeping peace. You're going to have to work at keeping unity. You're going to have to work on this. And I believe the way that we do that is we stay focused on Jesus. 
It's a tactic of the enemy to get us caught up in lesser, inferior things and thereby spread dissension amongst the saints. It's important that we make the main things the main things. This is why it's important that we stay unified in the place of prayer because if we're focused and we're connected with the Lord, all these other things that would like to distract and deter and disrupt the mission of God all of a sudden become not that big of a deal. But where I see uh, disunity, where I see dissension really begin to manifest, it's when Jesus isn't the main thing anymore, when Jesus isn't the priority when the mission of God is somehow kind of subverted for a different agenda, that could be good. It's, it's not necessarily like a bad thing. But when we forget what centralizes us and what unites us, it's easy for us to fall into dissension. I believe this. Unity is the ultimate mark of maturity. I say that because as we continue to read the book of Ephesians, and we're going to pick up in verse 11 here just for the sake of time, we see uh, Paul go on. He says, he himself, talking about Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Can can I be honest? Um, It made a lot more sense to me when I found out that Paul was probably dictating things to be written rather than just writing them because that's one heck of a run-on sentence. (laughs) And I didn't realize how that until I just started to read it uh, looking out right here. But let's break it down, okay? We're going to take this in chunks. We're not going to exhaustively cover this whole passage, this whole chunk this morning. So don't worry about that. But verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You guys may have heard of this uh, referred to as the fivefold ministry. And so, right, you got apostles. Man, I've already forgotten them. I, I want to do them in order. <laughs> oh, oh, man, and then I tried to be fancy, and I... Oh, come on. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, the Greek actually would join pastors and teachers together, uh, so it kind of disrupts the whole five-finger thing, and it's more of like a fourfold ministry. Anyway, just interesting if you're just uh, nerdy about that kind of stuff. But I love this passage because it really kind of describes me as God's gift to the church. I'm glad at least somebody laughed at that. Uh, My name, Nathaniel, actually means gift of God. So just, so just so you know, if you're ever doubting, I am God's gift to mankind. 
No, but reality is uh, pastors, teachers, prophets, the apostolic, these are roles that God has established. He's given them to the church for what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. This is where we have to be on the same page. It is not my job to reach the world for Jesus. It is not my job singularly as a pastor, because I'm a pastor, to make sure Pagosa gets saved. It is my job as a pastor to equip you, myself included in the saints, to do the work of the ministry. This whole, this whole kind of discrepancy between, you know, like clergy and laity and this line that came through where, you know, those that are vocationally called by God are the ones that are to do the ministry and we're there to support and make sure that we put some money in a box so pastor can go do ministry. The whole thing is just bonkers, not biblical. <laughs> you need to understand this. You, as a follower of Jesus, are called to full-time ministry. Do you understand that? You are called to ministry, and it is a gift as a pastor to be able to come alongside you and make sure that you have the tools, that you have the knowledge, that you have the giftings necessary to be able to do what God is asking you to do. And that's where the role of a pastor, that's where a role of a teacher, that's where the role of the prophet and the apostle comes alongside the church because church was never designed to be something that you attend. Does that make sense? Like, yes, I love it when you guys are here. That's important. It's gathering together and the encouragement and the fellowship that we have in the house of the Lord is important. But church isn't just something you go to. It's something that you are. It's something that we are. And we are on mission to see culture transformed because of what Jesus has done in us. And for us to be on the same page, you have to play a part in that. It's not enough for you to come and sit in a service and give money. Or, you know, sit in a service and just kind of, you know, say, good job, Pastor Nate. And I'm not saying everybody's going to do everything. We understand that there is... Unity is not the same as uniformity. Does that make sense? God has not designed us all to look exactly the same, act exactly the same, be exactly the same, and do the exact same things. There is great room for us to be unified in mission, but diverse in our giftings. Anyway. Uh, yeah. You guys get what I'm saying there. It's important. Verse 13, this is where I really wanted to kind of lay into. This is where it begins to come together. And the purpose for that, the purpose for the work of the ministry, the, pers- the purpose for the gifting of the fourfold ministry, right, of the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers, the reason for the equipping of the saints is this, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. Unity is the mark of spiritual maturity. Friends, we want to be spiritually mature. That is something that is important, but we don't want to do it just for unity's sake. Unity that is rooted in the knowledge of the Son of God. That is the aim. That is the goal. That is the call, is that we would know Jesus, that we would have knowledge of him, that we'd know him personally, that we would know him intimately, and in doing so that we would be united so that we could be presented as spiritually mature. Unity has to come from, first and foremost, 
with connection with Christ, not with one another. I think that's where we can get kind of disrupted. We think about unity in the terms of, man, i got to be on the same page as Darwin, and i got to be on the same page as Aaron, and if we're all together and we're unified in that scope, then that's good. But unity, first and foremost, for us as the church on the mission of God, comes when we're unified in the knowledge of the Son of God, in knowing who Jesus is. And if we know him intimately, if we know him personally, it makes it so much easier for us to be on the same page in every other aspect of community. Does that make sense? Unity has to come from connection and agreement with Christ, first and foremost, not primarily with one another. There are plenty of movements out there that are unified, but they have misguided motivations, right? I mean, for example, you could take ISIS or the KKK, right? Those guys are pretty much in agreement on what they believe and why they believe it, but they're united by something that is very, uh, (laughs) very malicious, right? They're united by what they hate and what they're against. And I think this is one of the things that I've seen especially in the rise of politicized Christianity and, you know, just the stuff that we see across the media, that the common perception is that Christians, at least evangelicals, are united more on what they're against than rather who they're for. You know, it's easy, you know, we're, we're, anti, uh, we're anti-gay marriage, we're anti-abortion, we're anti-these things, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for morality and to take a stand on certain things. That's not what I'm getting at here. But I want people to know that we're unified first and foremost in the work of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't take that statement and go off into la-la land. There, there, are <laughs> there are certainly groups out there that are unified and that are accomplishing things. But their motivation, their synergy is built around something that is not even remotely as powerful as it would be if the church was unified behind the mission of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So unity and mission. This is kind of where we're going with all of this. I think it's important that we define mission. When we're defining mission, specifically the mission of the church, we must first ask the question, what is the mission of God? Because we understand those things are uh, connected and they ought to be the same. Now, when I say the mission of the church, there are a lot of churches out there that have agendas that are on a mission that are not God's mission. Let's be very clear about that. There is a certain sect and breed of Christianity that has uh, erupted in the West where, uh, you know, Christianity and Jesus is just a commodity and it's to pad pocketbooks and see private jets. I read the startling report of the top uh, 100 um, whatnot paid employees from Christian nonprofits the other day um, that just made my stomach turn from these Christian ministries where guys are pulling in like $8 million salaries and uh, just bonkers. I'm not saying that you can't be blessed and be a Christian and be in ministry or something like that. Something was Stuff was weird. Anyway. But the mission of the church has to be the missions of God. The missions of God. Missy, missy, rewind, podcast. 
boom, hit that little button that fast forwards 15 seconds now um, when you're listening to this. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, Missy, Missy. That word that I evidently don't know how to say, even though I typed it, missiologists, <laughs> they've coined this term called Messiah uh, Day, which stands for the mission of God, and it refers to God's intentional actions in redeeming mankind. And so the first thing that I believe we must understand if we're going to understand God's mission for our church and ultimately his mission as God, uh, we need to... Uh, understand that he's intentionally working to bring mankind back to him. It's not something that's happening by happenstance. It's not something that he's kind of just casually set into motion. I believe the things that he is doing now are intentional, and he's intentionally working to bring mankind back to him. And so as we talk about the mission of the church, we cannot view it as the primary objective of an organization. When I'm talking about the mission of the church, I'm not talking about the ultimate end goal just of Open Door Church, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. When we're talking about the mission of the church, we must first view it as the heartbeat of the Father, which is to save mankind, which is to redeem people back to Him. And I wrote this, the church at large fails to fulfill its intended mission, not due to lack of resources, or inability, or people, or money, but rather because it is preoccupied and motivated by an inferior purpose the majority of the time. I believe that there is not a good excuse for any Bible-believing church to not be reaching souls. Myself and our church included in that statement I believe it's easy for us to get preoccupied. I believe it's easy for us to get distracted. And the enemy would love for us to be distracted with doing good things rather than what God has called us to. Because when we're doing what God has called and specifically and uniquely equipped this body to do, it is a detriment uh, to the advancement of the kingdom of darkness. The church fails to be the church as it was intended to be when our passions are not the same as Jesus. If we're going to be who God wants us to be, if we're going to do what he wants us to do, I believe that we need to have the same heartbeat that Jesus had in the sense that what he came to do needs to be what we're about. We have... Uh, we, we kind of have broken up what we interpret the Gospels and the New Testament to set forth as the mission of God into three different words, to awaken, to equip, and to send. We adopted those as Open Door Church uh, seven, eight years ago now. We haven't really done a lot of teaching on that since then. And so over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what exactly is the mission of God. Because it's easy to just say, you know, oh, it's evangelism. Oh, it's the Great Commission. Oh, it's to make disciples. Oh, it's to do this. And I, I believe it's a little more nuanced than that. I believe that there is a lot to it, and I think that's where we can get distracted and people can break off and not be in one accord. 
but we're going to collectively look at it through Scripture. We're going to look at what it looks like to awaken people to the reality of a God that loves them and see them pulled out of darkness into marvelous light. We're going to look at what it means to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to actually make disciples. We're going to look at what it means to actually send forth the launching, the thrusting. In fact, did you guys know that the word mission isn't actually ever mentioned in the New Testament in terms of like the English word mission? But if you were to kind of look at the Greek and even all the way back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew, uh, the word that is commonly translated is being sent. And that's in there a lot. And it's really cool. We're going to talk about that. But (laughs) I'm jumping ahead of myself. Friends, I believe it's so important for us if we're going to be pleasing to the Lord that we do what he's asked us to do. And I believe that this season is going to mark one of the greatest harvests. Um, I say that not, man, you guys, I I, I was hesitant to share this kind of sentiment even in the place of prayer, um, in our week of prayer, because I'm not the guy that is, oh, you know what, 2023 is going to be our year, and just because it's a new year, it's time to get our our, our aspirations correct and our gaze set and because it's going to be the year that blessing just comes in and prosperous and people are going to get saved less and right. It's just going to be so much different because the calendar changed. Um, but I strongly sense that what the Lord's doing in this season is going to be uh, is, is of utmost importance. And it has me rooted and grounded in a place where I want to make sure every little thing that we're doing is pleasing to the Lord, and it's because he asked us to do it, and we're in his will, and uh, that's my desire, friends. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.